Welcome to our next podcast from Fit Futures Academy. My name is Mike Clayton, and today my guests are colleagues of mine in the Auckland office. We have Nick Park, who's a senior tutor here at Fit Futures. How are you, Nick? What have you been up to recently? Yeah, good, thanks, Mike. Very good. Uh, yeah, just been up to uh, not a great deal, to be fair. Been watching a lot of football. NCAA and the NFL are back up and running, and uh, my beloved Miami Dolphins are extremely competitive this year, which is great to see. Uh, outside of that, I've been watching a lot of Netflix, been playing some video games on the old PlayStation and uh, continuing with some rediscovered past loves which uh, occurred during that first lockdown. Um, so yeah, I've been doing a lot of drawing, I actually drew Sonic the Hedgehog the other night which is pretty cool. Maybe I'll share it with you guys if you want to see it. <laughs> Sonic. Well today is uh, Michelle Murphy and George Pollitt, both experienced tutors and educators at Fit Futures. Hi Michelle and George, how are you both? What have you been up to recently? Thanks Mike, I've been good. I've uh, just been starting my role here at Fit Futures and so just been settling in the last few weeks. Um, so it's been really good. Outside of work, I've been doing a bit of strength training with some of my friends. Um, they've been teaching me a little bit more of the powerlifting style of stuff, which is really interesting to see how the strength changes with that. Um, and sort of working in Tagapuna, it's really nice being so close to the beach. Just get to go for walks after work and enjoy the sunshine. Thanks Michelle. George. Yeah, I'm good, thanks Mike. Really, uh, around the office we've been doing some pretty awesome things. We've been seeing the development of uh, professional opportunities for some of the trainers around. Um, we've been working on a movement competencies and movement pattern course for, for personal trainers, which has been really awesome developing the content for that. And then recently we've been writing um, a series of articles which has been focusing on strength and conditioning topics, and we wrote one last week on rate of force development, so I'm pretty excited to get that up and out on the website and hear feedback from all of the students on what they think on that one. Thanks, George. Thanks, guys. Uh, today's podcast looks from a tutor's perspective at strength and conditioning. Nick, Michelle, and George will provide their own experiences, thoughts, and beliefs, what has worked well for them, and maybe what has not. But before the team gets started, uh, if any of you out there find that you've enjoyed the podcast and the topic of discussion, please go to our Facebook page to like or to follow us on our Instagram feed, where you'll see what's currently happening in the industry. And uh, we'll make a start today. Uh, Nick, you can start with yourself. Yeah, cool, Mike. Um, I, I think what, what I'd like to chat about first, and hopefully hopefully Michelle and George are in agreement, but I find that, you know, you can learn so much about strength and conditioning, and, and George has highlighted it in, in the Rate of Force Development article. One of the reasons we actually wrote that article is because of how nuanced strength and conditioning is. But you can learn all these things from textbooks or, or, or from your lecturers, but there's so much that you can't actually do. Um, in the field when you're actively working with clients. And a lot of that actually has to do with the environment and you need to be fluid and adaptable to the conditions that you're presented with. And the conditions can range from the uh, other professionals that you have to engage with, whether that be a physiotherapist you know, from a, from a sports team, uh, it could be the sports coaches themselves and what the schedule looks like in terms of training and games and how long you actually have to train the athletes, whether that's one-to-one -one in a gym sense as it would be with a general population client or whether it's working with groups and, and really trying to thereafter prioritize certain components of performance above others. But one of the issues that i found is not all environments are created equal and that, that's sort of where that fluidity and adaptability comes into play. Uh, and I use the, I'll use two examples. One, I was training um, Duncan Campbell, a close friend of mine a few years ago 
Uh, he's a was New Zealand um, snowboard cross athlete. So that was an individual sport, and that was very very different because the two and I, uh, him and I, the, the two of us, shared a lot of banter um, in, in the gym, and it really just felt like training any other client. Uh, but you know, we developed a really good friendship, and and it was really easy. There, there was no real issue um, as long as we got through all the work. You know, we were able to laugh and joke. Whereas the environment that I was in uh, last season with Mount Wellington Football Club was was very very different. We had a lot of diverse personalities. It was team sports, so the challenges were different. I really only had one session a week with them. We were looking at maybe forty five minutes to an hour to cover whatever it was that we wanted to cover from a, a performance development standpoint. And thereafter, it was uh, match preparation on the day and a cool down if they wanted to do it. And a lot of these guys didn't. You know, they weren't into you know doing some light dynamic movements at the end of a game and, and you know having a stretch they wanted to get in the bar and, and have a drink and unwind and talk about you know how successful they either were or, were or were not on the pitch that day and and so that that was what what I found particularly challenging and then when you throw in some of the other aspects as well uh, players that we were working with were also heavily involved in other sports and that wasn't necessarily disclosed at the start so it wasn't until we were a little bit of a ways into our preseason program, and guys started, you know, pulling up short with hamstring issues, and and some guys were actually going backwards from, you know, our first to second testing time point. One guy was among the fittest in the group, and you know, at our next time point, four weeks later, um, he he had reduced his maximal aerobic speed by about fifteen percent, and was complaining of, of hamstring problems, and and you know, we spoke to the coach and said, hey, we shouldn't be seeing this, and then it turned out he was heavily involved in hurling and Gaelic football and he had actually been playing three or four Gaelic football games on weekends. Um, we had started our preseason games at that point too, so he was playing four or five games of sport on a weekend and, and you know, without but without that information we weren't able to fluctuate his um, training volume and intensity to suit him. So then we had to strip him right back and, and, and not allow him to train, but then um, he had issue with that at first because he just wanted to play. So there's all those sorts of things that can creep up in an environment um, that, that can significantly dictate what, what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Nick. Thanks for that. Um, Michelle, what are your thoughts? Um, so with my experience working with rowers, um, creating an environment in a gym is really important as well. Um, and following on from what Nick said, sometimes you um, are able to sort of have those um, smaller sessions where you've got sort of um, a specific age group or a specific gender in the uh, gym with you um, and that way you're sort of working with sort of five or six athletes at a time whereas sometimes doing full group training so um, at the moment uh, we are doing full group training so we're getting a whole squad of about 60 um, all together in the morning um, and again that's a very different environment that we've got to sort of try and sort out um, so it's very different from that one-on-one gym environment compared to sort of two coaches to 60 athletes trying to run a circuit training in the morning. Um, so again, you've got to sort of adapt sort of your approach to that, how you program for that. Um, you've got to make it sort of that all the, um, I guess, skill levels involved in the big group session, it kind of matches everyone, so you're not making it too difficult or too easy, especially when you've got um, a few different age groups and experience levels. Um, yeah, compared to sort of being in a gym environment where you can have that one-on-one connection um, and you've got sort of 60 minutes to get around four or five athletes um, mm. compared to sort of a 45-minute morning session where you've got to try and interact with up to 60 athletes. So, um, yeah, it's really just um, about changing your coaching approach um, and just sort of adapting um, the training so that it suits everyone. Yeah, yeah. George, what about yourself, your experiences? 
Yes, I think there's some uh, really awesome points raised by both Nick and Michelle. Um, and definitely had experience with kind of that disconnect occasionally between large groups and small groups. Um, and I really mirror, mirror everything that they've, they've seen and talked about so far. Something that I personally wanted to, to kind of mention was sometimes the logistics of running group sessions versus individual sessions, um, and even individual sessions in a busy gym when you expected it to be quiet as well. Um, so having a, a whole session planned out, you know, your key, your first primary couple goals of, of the session and then your secondary goals as well, and then obviously structuring exercises and progressions around those is really, really important. Um, but what do you do when you come in and, you know, that piece of equipment which you're planning to use for the first three exercises or is really key for the trainers to work around is, is either broken or gone. Um, and you, you know, you can't, you can't use it or, or it's busy with, an, with another group of people. So, you know, the logistics of running those sorts of sessions can be really, really complicated. And sometimes it's, it's not what you see on paper of, okay, we're going to work on X, Y, and Z capabilities and we're going to progress them for this reason because it's going to have a good carryover to their sport. And then you go into the gym and, you know, you're going to have to suddenly restructure the whole session because um, this certain piece of equipment isn't available, isn't there anymore. So kind of the small little nuances like that, I think, is a, is a really good topic to talk about for aspiring coaches because it gives you a, a good real-world insight into what it's like to be training these, these clients, people, and athletes. Hmm. Thanks, George. Um, Nick, can I ask you, you know, been at university and studying, uh, what was kind of a really good recommended reading text or uh, where you were getting your material from for reading up on uh, strength and conditioning? Awesome, awesome question. Look, I like the guys over at Science for Sport and I know George knows of a couple of other websites as well that, that offer similar services, but basically they, they read a whole bunch of academic research and they condense it based on certain topics. So they do a whole range of different topics from athlete monitoring, if that's what you're interested in, to the nutritional side of things. Uh, to your strength and hypertrophy development, youth athlete development, uh, and, and, and they condense it. So if you're not really a reader, the key is to get other people to do the work for you, and then you just take away the key points that you can go away and apply to your, your training or your programming. Um, so for anybody interested in, in sort of the sport science side of things and, and the performance development side of things, science for sport is probably a good start. If you're a reader and you're familiar with some of the terminology or you're comfortable reading things with big words, then uh, even just a, a simple Google search or Google, Google Scholar search looking at you know, sc a scholarly journal. Um, but a couple of my favorite journals would be the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research and the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. I forget which one, but one of them is associated with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. So then you're slowly developing ties and an affiliation to a, a certain belief system or, or, or group of philosophies and principles from a training standpoint, which is, which is a good thing. Um, but if you're looking strictly at texts, and, and I know that the majority of our students like to be training general pop clients, whether that's through a strength and conditioning focus or, or some more health-related focus, uh, one text that I tend to recommend a lot, especially if you're still learning uh, the, the muscles used or the joint actions used in certain exercises, um, and you're still developing your exercise palette, which uh, I should probably define that for you guys. I refer to an exercise palette as, as kind of like the, if you were an artist, what colors would you use to to paint a picture, right? So if the training program is your picture, then the exercises are what is in your palette or your arsenal that you can bring out and, and put onto the program, put onto the paper. So you need to, I was always told you want to have roughly six to eight uh, different exercises per muscle group stored, stored away um, that you can pull out at any one different time. And I find that Strength Training Anatomy by Frederick Delavier, I may have mispronounced that, um, is a really good text uh, and, and it just illustrates brilliantly actually, 
the various techniques with certain exercises and the muscles working. So I reckon that's a great text for anyone regardless of where your interest lies within the field. Uh, but additionally, anything written by Brett Contreras tends to be pretty good as well. And, and I'm a bit of a, a fanboy for Brett. I've met him a couple of times. He's great. Um, those of you that have been in my face-to-face -face classes, I mention him like every other session. But his content is really good. Um, and Bodyweight Training Anatomy, uh, one of his, his books, it's, it's similar along similar lines to Strength Training Anatomy, but it's all based on bodyweight stuff. The, the premise behind the book was if you were ever away on business and you couldn't access a gym, and all you had was some paper plates and a, and a couch or a chair in your hotel room, what could you do and how could you train? And so for example, one of the exercises is performing a bodyweight chest fly to develop your pecs, but using paper plates as sliders, which is really interesting, right? And, and you don't really think to do things like this. Um, and and for, because a lot of our, our students may be training business-oriented or corporate clients that, that are away on business and typically use that as an excuse or a reason for why they fall off the training wagon, a resource like that can be very, very worthwhile, very valuable. So I reckon those are two good texts to start off with, uh, but there's also tons of ebooks that you can access even for free. Um, it's really just a case of having a bit of a Google. The one thing I would say though is with any text or resource you look at, whether it be a book, an ebook, or, or, or an article, look at the source. And just make sure that it is, um, or be, just just be critical of where where it's coming from, and make sure that it's a valuable resource and one that's respected and peer reviewed, because there, there is a lot of misinformation out there too. Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing I'd say: look up a review for a, for a book or a text if, if that's what you're going to get, um, and just make sure that um, other people in the field, or certainly the academics, agree with what's being said. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, Dr. Google isn't always a great recommendation. For referencing so uh, that's what my yeah. GP tells me Mike yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome Nick thank you um, I know um, uh, Michelle and George have obviously under studied undergraduate and uh, postgraduate too uh, levels uh, Michelle your thoughts on strength and conditioning reckon, uh, work and where you resourced and got your own information from when you studied um, so Nick had some really really good points especially the last bit just remember to be critical on what you read don't really take anything for face value you feel like something might be a little bit off with what you're reading it's always really good to double check that um, because often you get a lot of people out there um, some of them might just be sort of through their own experience and might have kind of come up with some ideas and just put it out there um, which might not necessarily correlate with um, what sort of you know professionals in the industry um, are talking about um, and so yeah it's always just really good to be critical um, and don't sort of take everything with a grain of salt and always do your background research um, uh, when we were at uni, they always sort of taught us to try and do that critical thinking um, and yeah, to make sure that you check with those peer review, make sure that um, yeah, you're just making sure that you know, it's not just one person saying something, that there are more than sort of multiple people that have kind of agreed on research or sort of practical applications and how it works. Um, some really good um, people that I've sort of been reading through um, their research. Um, People like Eric Helms, um, he works with um, the Sprints at AUT Millennium. He's done a whole bunch of research, um, mostly towards bodybuilding and that sort of stuff, but um, he's got really good applications um, with how his training principles and how um, he trains clients and that sort of stuff. So he's really good to um, you know, read through some information or he's got a whole bunch of podcasts as well. So um, yeah, podcasts are a really good way to if you're not so much into the reading side of things, it's really good to listen. Um, obviously, you guys are listening to our podcast, so you're interested in that sort of stuff. So 
Um, it's really good if you're on Spotify or if you just Google podcasts. There's tons and tons of stuff out there. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Michelle. I know yourself and Nick studied at uh, AUT together, or oh, not together, but yeah. at the same uh, same provider. Um, George, I think you were elsewhere. Were you uh, Massey? Yeah, Massey boy. Yeah, we were uh, based based at Massey, and yeah, regarding you know resources and things like that. I, Pretty exceptional list from both Nick and Michelle. Um, a few name drops in there, which is always quite cool as well. <laughs> Personally, I'm not going to add to those because I, I think that's a pretty decent list to get you started. You know, Google Scholar is obviously your first place to start if you've had um, academic experience and, and you know how to read a scholar. And then all of those those researches in kind of the, the fitness realm are pretty decent. I am going to give a few of my favorite podcasts that I personally listen to. I think they're a really great resource that anyone can use, whether they're experienced or inexperienced in the field and something that you can pop on whilst driving. Um, I've put these up on the social media platform before, so you'll be able to find them on our Instagram and our Facebook. But the first would be Science for Sport, uh, which is kind of linked to the guys which Nick mentioned before. And they just review a whole bunch of exercise science related um, topics and theories and you know latest, latest publications and things like that. They get, get, get guest lecturers on to cover topics that they're experienced in. Um, and all of the people running the podcast are either masters or PhD level um, qualified individuals. So super, super well-known, super, super knowledgeable people. Um, and that's more exercise science based. And then if we're looking for more exercise science nutrition based, there's um, Sigma Nutrition Radio, which you'll find on both Spotify and podca Apple Podcasts and things like that. Um, and they do more sort of the, the realm of nutrition and wellness, but again, they do cover exercise science topics as well. So yeah, those two are, are probably my two key listens for, for me personally, and I, I can attest to learning a, you know, a whole bunch of, of things on super niche and super broad topics from both of those. So free resources that I think you can't really go without. Awesome, Josh. Um, I know back, back in the day when I was uh, in UK studying, uh, I always had a couple of lecturers uh, and trainers who you know, still stand out in my mind for what they did and how they came across and the kind of time they spent on one-on-ones and their tutorial sessions and their recommended reading lists uh, at the time and DVD videos, they, they, they were the in thing at the time so you know those kind of thoughts and memories stay with myself and uh, basically going back to uh, having some really good lecturers and, in education and, and pushing the next generation forward. That was VHS videos Mike. <laughs> VHS or I'm thinking of the other one, Betamax. <laughs> Betamax, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Not VHS, I think VHS is a British home store, isn't it? It's a shop. <laughs> Never mind, listeners. Never mind. But yeah, Betamax is probably going back a few years too. Um, thanks for that, Nick. Uh, <laughs> right, we're going to move on. Uh, Nick, um, did anything else you wanted to discuss this morning with um, strength and conditioning? Um, yeah, just one thing. So, I mean, a lot can be made of, of testing various performance components and I mean again even from a general population standpoint we do testing so regardless of your client regardless of the area of expertise or the area of the field you're working in you're going to be assessing client capabilities whether that be from a health standpoint or a performance standpoint or maybe both but I think sometimes what tends to get overlooked is why you're doing something and especially from a testing standpoint I think some trainers and, and I've been guilty of this in the past as well is falling into the habit of testing for testing's sake. The idea behind testing anything is to inform your programming. So from a general population standpoint, you may take heart rate and blood pressure, uh, and that's really to determine their overall health and whether or not they are ready to undertake a, a physical training program. For athletes I've worked with in the past, 
as an example of football, we did a maximal aerobic speed test, but the idea is that that information was going to be used to develop their training pro uh, training programs and develop their training programs uh, for well, in an individual sense for the, for, for the preseason program. So anytime you test, it should inform your program. Okay, that's something that John Cronin, one of our, our senior lecturers at AUT, used to harp on about. Make sure that it informs your programming. Anything you do has to inform programming because at the end of the day, what we want to do is write a training program to improve a, a client or an athlete, um, and, and the testing is going to give us insight into how well they move. Maybe if it's a movement competency-based um, assessment, it, it could give you insight into their fitness, it could give you insight into into their strength or their power, but if they don't specifically require uh, power development or, or, or improvement in power, then why test for it? So, so that's definitely something that, that I'd encourage people to do. There's lots of tests out there, there's 12K runs, there's beep tests and things, but if it's not giving you information that's going to inform your programming, then it's actually a, like redundant to, to assess that measure. Uh, sometimes we see it in our students' work where a client won't have any body composition related goals but they still will do Gersel skin folds and it's like that's great but uh, what, what was the reason behind doing the Gersel skin folds and then typically they'll go oh, I don't know it's just we learned about it so we thought we'd do it it's like well yeah that's awesome but if it's not actually giving you any information that you can use um, then that's probably not the test to go for and then they may say oh they had a lot of really really awesome cardiovascular related goals or maybe some health and wellness related goals great then use measures that can objectively uh, demonstrate improvement um, in, in, in those aspects instead. Okay, awesome Nick, thank you for that. Michelle, your thoughts? Um, I guess following on from what Nick's just said as well, um, it's really good to, I guess, help with that athlete or client to help them understand why you're doing something. Um, so whether that's the fitness testing, you need to get them to understand why sort of you've chosen what you've chosen. Um, it's a really good way to get that buy-in from that athlete or the client um, to get them to sort of um, put all the effort into that testing or put all the effort into that programming so that they um, can see those improvements when you do the pre and post testing. Yeah. Thanks Michelle. Do you have a set number of say tests that you use or any any standard tests that you'd use with a wide range of, of clients or athletes that we can maybe talk about with the students today? Yeah cool, um, awesome question. So with, with my guys at football it was very much uh, limited to their physical conditioning in terms of their uh, fitness and energy system development and so we, we used maximal aerobic speed because it was uh, well firstly applicable but it was also easy to administer with the large numbers that we had and the resources that we had at our disposal. Are there tests that we would have rather used? Yes maybe 30-15 uh, or yo-yo hour one or two um, might have been a little bit more appropriate but we couldn't necessarily as easily administer it with the resources available and we couldn't necessarily use that information and directly plug it into our Excel sheets and, and generate a whole bunch of individual based um, training distances and intensities. So we went with max aerobic speed but other than that we were kind of looking at, at skill development based tests as well and uh, some, some basic movement competency tests and then basic things like uh, sprint and, and change of direction speed. But it's going to be very much dictated to by, by the client. So again, with Duncan, what we were doing, because it was quite a bit different, and he was a youth athlete, I think he was 17 at the time, so that was very heavily geared towards his movement competencies and muscular endurance. We did a change of direction and agility-based assessment as well, because they wanted to improve his athleticism on the snow. 
So that, that was something that was introduced a little bit further along, but, but it was basic measures. Um, a couple that I really liked was they got him to do 20 kilogram squats, it was just the bar, but he, he was squatting with, a, well, technical requirements, so he was doing like a box squat, and, and that was as many reps as possible. Um, really good muscular endurance based assessment, you can do the same with push-ups and sit-ups, and I think that applies to a lot of people in the general population as well, so for those listeners that aren't necessarily going to be working with recreational based athletes, um, those are great tests that you can use with just about anyone if they've got muscular endurance or, or fitness based um, assessment goals. Uh, I, I definitely am an advocate for ensuring that basic health measures are also assessed regardless of your clientele, so that's your, your blood pressure and, and your heart rate. Um, you can look at, at other basic body compositional measures, that, like if you need to monitor weight. Um, we would do that back when I was playing football, our strength coach would weigh us before and after a game and make sure that we drank um, what we had lost in fluid prior to prior to leaving the changing room. So, so there's loads that you can do and, and it's, it's, it's definitely varied. I, I don't actually know that I've ever worked with clients or teams where the testing has been the same. Mm -hmm. um, there's always certain tests that, that I, I may or may not use based on a whole bunch of different factors. But um, yeah, to answer your question, George, um, yeah, as I say, I really like the health measures regardless of client um, and then yeah, with the football guys, uh, Whatever, whatever fitness or, or speed testing um, you can run, I like the field test just because they're so easy. Like even a speed test, you just mark out some cones with a tape measure. If you guys don't have one and, and you work with, with people in, in the field, definitely go and buy one, you know, 10, 20 dollars from my to 10. I've got a 100 meter one so I can mark out 100 meters at any point. Um, but that was really important for the maximal aerobic speed stuff, um, especially when you know, we had prescribed training distances for them to run and we were using the, uh, the, the Eurofit method, which is basically um, running over your prescribed distance, but you have to get to the, um, to the end of that prescribed distance in 15 seconds. And you do that until I tell you to stop or until you hurl, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, ha having, having the resources to accurately mark out um, that, that distance was important, but so easy. And you can do it anywhere, whether it's on a soft surface, hard surface, or, you know, whether you're wearing uh, football or rugby boots because you're on grass, or, or you're wearing sneakers because you're on um, Astro or, or a hard court, you, you can basically run those sorts of tests anywhere. So it's it's giving us a measure, helping us inform our programming, but also so easy to implement, and, and I think it needs to be. I think I, I might have missed out on the, the snowboarding guy, yeah. Duncan. What kind of tests were you doing with him? So we were doing the so the squat test for muscular endurance, oh, right, right. Um, and we, we did, I believe it was a T-test for his change of direction speed, but um, there wasn't really something applicable to a snowboard because obviously he's in a fixed position when he's on the board uh, but they wanted to improve his athleticism and, and we were mainly looking at his ability to react quickly um, in, in his training but we didn't really have um, a stimulus uh, oriented assessment that we could use so we just stuck with change of direction which is like only one piece of the puzzle but still gave us some information um, and that was because when he was at the I believe it was the junior world games and uh, he came off his board, he landed from a jump, he got bumped by an opponent, he came off his board and it cost him the race. And they actually needed to, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, I don't know, you know he's probably not even listening to this podcast, but um, he... He was surprised at who made the sketch Yeah, yeah, how far, <laughs> far and wide reaching is it? But um, yeah, so he ended up needing to speak with a, a sports psychologist to um, get him confident again to go back on the snow. And so they said, well, what can we do to help him? Let's see if we can improve his athleticism. So that was something that I was tasked with. And I had free reign of that. I was mainly facilitating programs that the head of strength and conditioning had written. But with my background in field sports, uh, they, they, they thought that I was well equipped to, 
to train him in change of direction, speed and agility, and so we were looking at assessing that. Um, but then he also had body compositional measures because they wanted him to stay at a particular weight because with snowboard cross, they, they describe it as motocross on snow, and then obviously on a snowboard as opposed to a bike. Mm. But the idea is that yeah, you, you have a course, it's basically first one to the bottom of the course wins. Okay, that's how it works. But you're racing against five or six others and there's various jumps and lands that you have to execute. And while you can't necessarily um, intentionally bump somebody off, if there is contact, it's allowed. So you have to be able to withstand contact in the air sometimes, execute your land, and then obviously speed off and weave your way through the course down to the bottom to win. And, and typically the races are like one to two minutes long. It's very, very fast. So that, that, that was definitely something that, that they wanted to improve, but body composition was important too. And because Duncan was, um, he'd been well-fed by his mum, it was very cool. In fact, there was a couple of times after testing sessions, because Duncan would drive me from Queenstown to Wanaka, because I was too scared to drive over the Crown Range by myself in the snow and stuff. And, and you know, we'd, we'd drive over the Crown Range and um, we'd go and do the testing or the training session with uh, Shane, the head of strength and conditioning. And then Duncan would be like, can we stop off at the bakery? I'm like, dude, you're driving. So, you know, we'd stop at the bakery and, you know, he, he, he had a bit of a sweet to us, you know, we'd, we'd get cream donuts and things like that. And then, and then just hope that it didn't negatively impact his body composition. But basically what they were trying to do is just get rid of his, uh, his fat mass and, and make it sort of more, more functional mass. And they got him down to around about 92 kilograms, but they didn't want to go below that because he needed to generate momentum on the snow. So it was a very, very interesting part of the science. So, so we had to, obviously programming was geared towards improving his movement competency, so we assessed that, how well can he squat, overhead squat was one that we used, um, and then yeah, the, the muscular endurance side of things, um, which was a, a focus in his programming because they wanted him to acquire volume with those uh, exercises and techniques to reinforce you know, good training habits. Um, but yeah, definitely body composition. Uh, I believe we also looked at a speed test, we also looked at various plyometrics, so you went to power, I think he did a squat test and a counter movement jump test. Uh, and, and we didn't, funnily enough, this was a high performance sport and you know, they didn't necessarily have a vertex or anything like that. So I, from memory, it was um, chalk on the fingertips, jump, use the tape measure and measure distance. And, and you know, they're looking at the difference between his squat jump and counter movement jump, which George actually describes really well in the article that you guys are yet to read, but you've heard so much about already. And, Basically, the differences between the squat jump and the counter movement jump can inform programming, which is great. So, it's a measure of power, right? So, the vertical jump measure of power. But with the, the counter movement side of things, it's looking at the elastic contribution um, to your jump. Whereas the squat jump, you literally go down into a position, you hold it, all the elastic potential uh, sort of dissipates, and then it's a contractile component only jump, which basically just means that they're, they're looking at how strong you are. And if your um, squat jump's really good but your counter movement isn't, then you need to do a whole bunch of ballistics and plyometrics, more explosive style training. But um, on the flip side, if your counter movement's really good but your squat jump isn't, then you need to be getting under a barbell and, and pushing some load. So, does that answer your question, Mike? Mate, yes. <laughs> Bit of a tangent. I never thought we would be going on <laughs> talking about cream buns in Queenstown on this discussion. <laughs> Nick, fantastic, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, Michelle, just uh, rowing yourself, uh, yeah. you know, obviously with your coaching, uh, kind of the, the tests you do for, uh, for rowing? Um, so with rowing, um, you tend to race sort of over 2,000 metres, um, so we tend to do a 2,000 metre ergometer test, um, so that's on the rowing machines, and that's just pretty much how quickly you can play that 2,000 metres. Um, as well, often we can do other tests, so um, a 10 trick power test, to see the maximum power that they can output. Um, which is really important for you know getting the boat starting from obviously standstill on the blocks to getting going so usually that first 10 strokes is what gets 
the boat up and moving um, and often sort of races can be made or break, broken um, and that first start, um, you know, getting out in front is really good psychologically, you can see all the sort of boats behind you, so if you've got a really good start, hopefully you can maintain that. So um, with the kids, often we do that power testing, um, usually before the season starts, um, and then sometimes we can do that during the season as well to see just how well they might be maintaining or improving that power. Um, in a gym, we can do some testing, so um, especially with the newer kids as they first come through the gym, um, do a lot of movement testing just to make sure that they are moving okay with the simple body uh, movements, so, you know, your squat, your lunge, your bend and pull movements. Um, and then from there we can sort of, that's going to help um, adjust with the programming. So if we find that their movement competency isn't too great, you just strip them back, you just take them right back to the basics. If they're moving really well, that's when you can start adding that little bit of load to them as well to help build that strength. Um, often you find, especially with the younger kids, they're quite uncoordinated in that sort of 13, 14 year old time frame as they're still growing. So it's really good to sort of get them to learn the movements first. Um, and obviously that's um, relates a little bit back to my coaching philosophy, um, sort of, you know, learn the movement first before you um, sort of add any weight or make it more difficult. So um, another sort of some strength testing we can do, um, often we add a little bit of core into that as well. Um, so whether that's sort of isometric holds, um, as well as that lower body strength and endurance as well. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. George, anything to add to that or something else you want to discuss this morning? Hey, no, I just think that was... Yeah, yeah, awesome little rant by both of those guys. Um, <laughs> went on a few sort of tangents, which I didn't anticipate, but good, good, to, good to hear their opinions and, and definitely detail everything that they've said so far. Um, I really like Michelle's um, comments on movement first, um, focusing on movement patterns and teaching athletes, especially young youth athletes, you know, proprioception and control of their limbs and how to, how to hinge at the hip and how to hinge at the knee and, and how to pull it is, is so, so important. So... Yeah, just really, really echoing that and um, also dealing in, in large team environments versus an individual training environment and then professional versus amateur, you know, you're looking at time constraints and, you know, resources that you have available and whether you have time to test each athlete, athlete individually um, and cater the tests more towards their specific deficiencies that you've, you've identified in their sport or whether you have to use blanket testing for the whole team. Um, all these are all considerations that you have to make and yeah ultimately you'll, you'll learn on the go so I think that was some really really awesome knowledge by, by both those guys and definitely something that we want to take take moving forward Nick mm -hmm. uh, anything else left from strength condition today you'd, you'd just like to raise with the listeners nothing in particular Mike um, we could be here for hours mm -hmm. if, if you guys want me to keep talking so <laughs> um, but yeah I no, can't, can't really think of, of too much else I think, I think we've really covered some some good topics today. Happy to continue going if, if the other guys do a bit, but for me it was really just about, yeah, just to summarize, uh, being fluid and adapting to the environment and making sure that you're utilizing the resources that are available to you because sometimes we want to do things and the reality is we just can't, but the textbook says that that's what's ideal. Um, and, and it's just a case of knowing that it's okay if, if you know, you've only got access, as George says, to a couple of pieces of equipment, you need to revamp what you're doing. As long as the movement patterns are the same and, and the general prescription as far as program variables go, if you need to adapt and change on the fly, uh, just just know that it's it's more often than not warranted and it's 100% okay to do so. Uh, and, and also apply that to your own training as well. Don't don't panic if you know you, you go to the gym after work and you can't get in the squat rack. You know there's there's tons of other things that that you can do. 
that utilize the, the same movement patterns and will work the same muscles and you can still still achieve a really good result. And then also just going back to the text that, that I suggested, if you ever find yourself away from home and you're panicking, man, I, I you know should be in the gym, I can't access the gym, there's loads of stuff you can do outside. And I think actually a lot of the listeners would have already discovered that during the lockdowns that we've experienced yeah. this year due to COVID. Um, a, lot, a lot of people had to get creative with, with what they were doing and, and just know that, you know, that Mm. It can be for yourself, but it can also be for your clients from a training perspective. Sometimes you need to be creative, and, and that, that's part of the fun. Like, you know, I, I really love the nuances of programming, but I also love, you know, the challenges that certain training environments can, I guess, create. And, yeah, half the fun for me is adapting to those, and because that, that's where you really get tested, when things don't go right. Well, that'd be the sign of a good personal trainer, too, though, like somebody else adaptable goes into a gym and sees that certain equipment is not ready for their clients and having a backup plan yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. it also comes with the experience though obviously mm. setting out as a new personal trainer or a new coach sort of you might not have that background knowledge um to be able to um i guess change things up on the fly but yeah that comes with experience so don't be afraid to fail um just learn from it next time and go forth awesome so the only thing i would just add in on add in on here is it'd be really cool to hear feedback based on what we've talked about today and, and also moving forward if there's if there's anything that you'd like us to focus on or topics you'd like to hear us discuss then it'd be really great for you just to e- either email us directly or email Mike and just just let us know what, what you're after and, and we can use that moving forward to try and create some more resources for you guys to use to learn and, and grow and yeah maybe one day we look at getting some students on as well. Thanks Josh, uh, nice comments and a nice way to finish uh, today's podcast. And I thank you, all three of you, for dropping in today and sharing your thoughts and opinions and experiences with our listeners. I'm sure there's plenty of our students out there that will benefit from this and be able to relate to the uh, content on this podcast. Just before Nick, Michelle and George and I finish today, uh, please keep in contact with us. Uh, if you've liked the topic of the podcast, please go to our Fit Futures Academy Facebook page and drop us a line or have a look at our Instagram feed and follow what we're doing in the health and fitness industry. Uh, last words, just to my guests today. Uh, just any last comments, uh, Nick, from yourself? Um, I'm going to unwind this a little bit. So I've been watching a lot of Netflix, and I'd be keen to hear what the guys, <laughs> the guys have been watching recently in their spare time. Um, but I'll start things off. I really love the show Unsolved Mysteries. Like, grew up watching it as a kid, and they, they kind of rehashed and brought it back out. And the second part of the latest season dropped on Netflix um, on Monday and, and it's epic. Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries, mate. Right. It is so... Is it Aussie American? No, it's American. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Although, it, the, the beauty about the Netflix one is they, they look at mysteries from all around the globe. It's not just those based in in the States, uh, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And other than that, I've been watching um, Cobra Kai and I'm going to test how far-reaching um, this particular podcast is William Zabka who plays Johnny Lawrence it was his birthday the other day so William thanks for everything you do I absolutely love the Karate Kid love Cobra Kai happy birthday to you sir <laughs> Nick awesome uh, Michelle uh, Netflix anything just to finish off with um, I've been recently watching um, uh, a Japanese anime it's called Haikyuu uh, it's about um, you know high school volleyball team going through tournaments and competing uh, so it's quite motivational um, with that sort of sports side of things you know the highs and lows of volleyball it's really really interesting it's a little bit geeky but I love it so it's good yeah awesome sadly it's not on Netflix though so you gotta do some a little bit of Google searching to find it <laughs> 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 is that all it is?
George, yourself, last word? Uh, myself, personally, I've been really enjoying a couple of different series of movies recently. Um, a huge love of mine is something I always, always love tuning into, you know, on a Sunday morning is a bit of Rick and Morty. Um, just great TV shows, great bit of content. Um, and yeah, awesome, awesome way to pass those sort of few hours that you have in between important tasks, a little bit of light humour. Um, not sure it's something that might you should you should be showing your kids, but yeah, definitely worth a watch. Maybe maybe late at night. <laughs> Thanks um, for that recommendation, George. Yeah, no worries. And uh, last night I was watching a bit of uh, The Big Lebowski as well, which is sort of a '90s comedy adventure, which I really really enjoyed. So yeah, both of those two definitely worth your time if you've got a few hours to spare. Thank you, George. Uh, I'll finish today. Uh, I've been watching um, some British Netflix, uh, some murder mysteries. Um, safe. Uh, by David Hablam, if anybody's uh, seen it on there, it's a series of uh, murder mysteries, American author, uh, set in uh, set in Britain, and um, if anybody likes Miss Marple and that kind of stuff, the old school, worth a watch. Um, awesome. Um, just until next time then guys, thank you very much for listening, and I uh, hope today's content was worthwhile. And uh, yeah, like Josh said, please uh, please drop us all a line if, if if you've enjoyed it, and if there's anything else out there that you'd like us to discuss next time, uh, we'd be uh, we'd be more than welcome to to have your uh, inquiries. Until next time, thank you very much, and uh, goodbye from the Fit Futures team.